In the rapidly changing world, healthcare needs are constantly evolving and clinicians need to find new ways to deliver care. And often the best way to do that is by looking back. Without Marie Curie, there would be no pioneering improvements to medical imaging today. If Edward Jenner didn't inoculate a 13-year-old with cowpox, there wouldn't even be a space for Professor Ian Fraser's cervical cancer vaccine. Our clinicians are standing on the shoulders of those who came before them, learning, growing and advancing. Hindsight isn't 2020. It's our future. Picture your morning routine. You wake up, get out of bed, and more often than not, have a clear idea of how your day is going to go. Maybe like Dolly Parton, as you tumble out of bed, you pour yourself a cup of ambition and head into the office. Maybe you're on a week of night shifts, and that morning routine is actually in the middle of the day. Or maybe you're on leave and having a relaxing day. No matter what your plans are, your day is planned. But what happens when everything falls apart? Gail, Gail, talk to me. Open your eyes. Christ, Gail, I'm going to lose you. I can't feel your pulse. Just hang on, please. I had a shocking realisation at that point. I had run out of knowledge and I didn't know what else to do. So I leant back to grab the phone that I had on a chair behind me and it wasn't there. I could hear people talking in the room outside. So I yelled, where's the phone? Someone bring me the freaking phone so I can call the flying doctors. But no one came. I don't know if they even heard me. I knew at that moment that only I stood between Gail and probable death. I started to feel overcome with emotions and I have never felt so alone and scared. I wanted to cry. I wanted to hold her and tell her that I had done my best and that I was sorry. But I knew I couldn't live with that. Your whole life has prepared you for this moment, I told myself. So just keep doing what you've been doing. I had to imagine I was physically pushing all those horrible emotions down into the pit of my gut where I couldn't hear or feel them. I had to really fight to maintain control of my emotions just to function. I thought this was way too big for me. So I scolded myself, come on, you can do it. Just repeat what you've been doing, stick to the basics, and keep going. I then used every orthodox and unorthodox method of stimulation that I had ever heard about or ever seen. And Gail stirred. Oh my God, she's alive.
In August 2002, former nurse Robin Nelson was enjoying a sleep-in after weeks of mustering cattle when a phone call from her neighbour changed everything. In an instant, Robin was back in the role as a nurse and for five hours, the sole first responder standing between life and death. I was born and raised on my parents' sheep and cattle stations across New South Wales and Queensland. My career was as a trained nurse. I'd worked in city and uh, rural hospitals in both a clinical and a management capacity. So like many of you here, I had experienced a lot. It's very hard for me to talk about the experiences with Gail. Um, but I do it because I want to share the really valuable lessons that have come out of it. I was highly aware of the risks and the need for safety systems in the rural environment, but I also knew that in the early 2000s it was not a strength of the agricultural industries. So when I relocated my family to the 40,000-acre Glenavon Station in central Queensland, I implemented my own. My family and workers called it ROS, Robin's Obsession with Safety. Everyone was trained in the system, everyone had their first aid certificate, and I created some practical and fun opportunities for them to practice those skills. My motivation was simple. We lived 350 kilometres west of our main town of Mackay, and 100 kilometres northeast of Murrumbah, where we could access basic services. We had no mobile phone service and our UHF's uh, reception was patchy at best. So had there been an accident, when I had gone to Mackay for supplies or to have equipment repaired or business, my children and my workers would have to have been first responded to each other. I could not have lived with myself if I had not prepared them to be able to do the best they could but especially for my children to be able to be the first responder to each other if they needed to be, and they did have to on more than one occasion. It was vital, and it was a priority for me as their mother. Gail Shan was my neighbour and friend. We worked together. We had coffee, we talked, we fought fires together and we socialised together, especially at camp drafts where we all competed. Just three weeks before Gail's accident, my husband and I had been first on the scene to a Queensland rail truck that ran off the road and crashed. The very next day, I got home and I overhauled our Royal Flying Doctor first aid chest, which was exactly the same as the one that is here on the stage today. I ensured that all the medications were current and anything that was about to expire was reordered. So when Gail's accident happened, I knew exactly where everything was in the first aid kit. I knew what wasn't there and I knew which shelf it was on. I also knew that I hadn't yet received the replacement morphine from Queensland Health so that the only supply of morphine that I had was out of date. Tip one, know your first aid kit inside out. How many of you here have ever mustered cattle? 
Yes, great. You're the, experiencing those amazing sunrises and the beautiful sunsets and the little calves running along beside their mother. We won't mention the dirt or the dust or the flies and the bruised arms and skin off. But my favourite was always that beautiful smell of a sweating horse. Well, it's a big job when you have nearly 6,000 head of cattle and we had been mustering for weeks. The night before Gail's accident, we were all exhausted. So I suggested to my husband that we didn't leave home until 7.30 the next morning. We had been leaving at 5am. And to my surprise and delight, he agreed. As a result of that decision, we were still at home at 7.15 the next morning when we received the phone call from Adam, our worker next door. Adam said that Gail had had an accident in the post hole digger and had really hurt her arm. I asked him if she was alive and if they'd called triple zero and he said yes to both. I then asked him if she was conscious and I didn't receive an answer. The relevance of this conversation is that my expectations of Gail's injuries were bruises, lacerations and probably a fractured arm. Tip two, be explicit about the victim's condition and injuries. I asked my husband to go and get a foam mattress, the Royal Flying Doctor Service first aid kit and to get all the rolled up towels out of our linen cupboard and put them in a vehicle for me while I raced down to the office to call the Royal Flying Doctor 24 hour medical line to get authorization to administer the expired morphine if I needed to. Dr. Cliff Neppy answered the phone and he said, thank God you've rung. We have no idea where to go other than one hour north of Murrumbah. I was instantly able to give him the coordinates of the Cantor Park airstrip and he said, Robin, it's too short. We need a thousand metre airstrip to land our plane on. Where is the nearest one? I was instantly able to give him all the coordinates and the details of our airstrip which was 15 kilometres away from Gail and Mac's house. Tip three, have an emergency services card or similar with all the vital information written on it and accessible to everybody. Dr Nepi told me that they'd need two tray top vehicles to transport their team and the equipment to Cantor Park. So my husband had to organise that. He also had to muster the cattle out of the airstrip paddock and then grade the surface of the airstrip because you get those little uh, termites nests that jump up even in a drought and that's what we were in at that time and a pilot can't see them from the air so if they happen to hit one it will actually flip the plane and we didn't want that happening. So I drove fast to where Gail had told me the night before they'd be working but they weren't there. Ensure accurate and complete transfer of information during phone calls, especially location. So I kept driving towards their house. I saw the tractor and then I saw Gail's glove having, hanging off the nipple on the universal joint where the three-point linkage meets the post hole digger from the back of the tractor. I followed the trail of blood and I found Gail on a bed in an outside bedroom, which was separated from the main house by a four metre wide breezeway. I was absolutely shocked at what I saw. 
Gail had a gaping laceration over her right eye. Her eyelash had torn off and was sitting on her cheek below her lower eyelash and the flap of skin had folded back against her forehead. I could see right into the base of her skull. She had hit the gearbox of the post hole digger to cause that injury. Yet that was the least of my worries. When Mac and Adam came in, I asked Adam to grab all the rolled up towels and the first aid kit out of my vehicle and bring it in, which he did immediately. I then asked Adam to give me his watch because the second hand on my watch had broken during our muster and I knew that I'd need it for Gail's obs. I then asked him to go and wash his hands because he'd actually been welding that morning and they were very dirty. And I said, please come back and help me. You won't have to think. You just have to help me as I ask you to. A sheet was covering Gail's body as she lay on the bed. Adam folded the sheet back and he said, Robin, Gail's arm has completely gone. It fell off as I carried her inside. Oh my God, I thought my chest, my heart was going to jump through my chest. It was pounding so fast. My mouth went dry as I slipped my hand under her shoulder and I couldn't feel a shoulder blade. Is that even possible, I thought. Gail was in excruciating pain. She was screaming, what's happened? Mac, I'm in so much pain. Adam then left the room and I thought to wash and return. I took a deep breath and I thought, wow, you've really got your work cut out for you this time, Robin. I slipped into what we used to call clinical emergency mode. My head was clear and I knew what to do, or so I thought. Mac was visibly in shock but he responded really well to clear, simple instructions. So I asked Mac to bring me a jug of water, a glass and a bowl to wash and rehydrate Gail. I asked him to bring me some blunt nose scissors so I could cut the clothes off her. I only had the surgical scissors out of the first aid kit and they were very sharp. I asked him to bring me bags of ice and frozen veggies and Finally, but most importantly, the cordless phone out of the house. And I said you to leave the cordless phone here so that only I can use it to talk to the RFDS. Not even you can use it, Mac. The one thing that the first aid kit didn't have in it were artery forceps. So I asked Mac to go and find a pair of vet pliers or some metal dog clips out of the office or anything that I could use for a clamp. Someone brought the water in and left again. How the hell am I going to do this on my own? What's taking Adam so long to come back? Gail was thrashing her head from side to side, screaming out, put my arms down by my side. I'm in so much pain. Gail's clothes were pulled tightly and shredded across her tiny frame, cutting off the circulation and preventing me from properly accessing the tear injury. When I cut the clothes off, it released the pressure and there was a waterfall of blood. The injury was approximately 160 millimetres by 20 millimetres wide. I knew I had to find the offending blood vessels here. I had never seen a tear injury before and I had tried to apply pressure but that did not work. 
There was a string of nerves and tendons hanging from the wound, so I grabbed hold of them with my gloved hands, and they were so damn slippery. I didn't think I was going to be able to hold on to them, but that was all I had. I had no artery forceps, just my hands. The surrounding muscles were spasming, and in between those muscles spasms, I very gently but firmly pulled on that string in the hope that it would expose the primary blood vessels. Gail started screaming the most soul-piercing scream I have ever heard in my life. You're hurting me! You're hurting me! Gail, I have to do this. I didn't want to hurt her. I just wanted to wrap her up and make her better. My heart was racing. Can't someone outside hear her screaming? Why won't they come in and help? I couldn't leave Gail, so I had to just keep on going. Anatomically, I knew that the main blood vessels should be close by that string, but was I delusional? Regardless of my doubt, I persevered. Where's the doctor? I wanted to wipe my face, but I couldn't let go, so I shook my head trying to block out Gail's screams and clear my thoughts. I pulled on that string again and again and again. And there they were, two blood vessels. I broke out in the sweat and my heart started racing even faster. Grab hold of them and hold them until they clot, I told myself. It was like trying to hold a wet fish. They were so damn slippery. Gail's screams would haunt me for years to come, and they still do now when I think and talk about it. Mac had brought in some large ice cubes that were shaped like a dog bone. I'd never seen anything like it before, only the shaft was square. They were really perfect for what I had in mind. So once I was convinced the blood vessels had clotted, I eased them over the shaft of the ice cube and then I took the slippery wet string and in a figure of eight motion, I bound the blood vessels to that ice cube, turned it over one rotation as I was doing it. I was terrified of losing my grip because my thumbs and fingers were numb from holding on. I had a knot in the pit of my stomach about the size of a cricket ball and I was shaking as I changed my grip to hold the blood vessels onto the ice cube with my left hand only. I constantly checked and re-iced that wound over the next two hours. Gail was in excruciating pain so I administered morphine and as you all know morphine's a vasodilator so I was terrified that it may exacerbate her bleeding. I checked her body and I noted that she had a shattered left arm, a compound fracture of her left femur, lots of lacerations and bruises, and that was all I could see other than her missing right arm and shoulder blade and her eye laceration. I then called Dr Nepi to report on her condition, and Dr Nepi said, based on what you've told me, it's unlikely that Gail will survive until we arrive, and he gave me some instructions. He then told me that his team and the RFDS team were about to leave Rockhampton and that they would arrive in two hours. Two hours? Oh my God. 
he then quickly told me that the local Murrumbad uh, GP and the Central Queensland Rescue helicopter would arrive in one hour. So I just have to keep Gail alive for one hour then, okay? It felt like a lifetime, but I had actually only been with her for about 15 minutes at that point. I talked to Gail constantly to keep her calm, reassure her, and try to keep her stimulated. I cleaned her face and her eye laceration. I folded the flap of skin back into its proper position and stereostripped it. And then I very carefully stereostripped the eyelash back onto the flap of skin. It was still holding in both corners. I then washed her left arm and stabilised it. I noticed she wasn't moving it at all. Now, with no IV equipment, I decided that I'd give Gail oral fluids. I know it's against every rule, and I can feel the horror in the room at the moment. But I knew instinctively that if I wasn't able to administer fluids to Gail, she wouldn't make it because she had lost too much blood. So I asked her to turn her head towards me. I put my little finger in the cheek of her mouth and made a pocket, and I trickled water down into that pocket, and I told her to swallow with her head in the same position. And remarkably, Gail did exactly what I asked. And over a two-hour period, I was able to administer about 450 mils of water. After two hours and within 15 minutes, all of the medical services arrived at once. Dr Johan Schultz, the Murrumbah Ambulance, the Central Queensland Rescue Helicopter and Dr Cliff Neppy and the RFDS team. Dr Johan Schultz had actually driven past the property's main entrance one hour before. He was the new Murrumbah GP and this was our first meeting. And I can tell you, I have never been so pleased to see a strange man in a bedroom as I was to see Dr Johan Schultz that day. While Dr Johan and I were desperately trying to get an IV into Gail, another medico raced into the room like a cyclone. They contemporaneously yelled, this bed shouldn't be up against the wall, and grabbed the edge of the bed and pulled it away. And as he did, some of the towels that I'd used to pack Gail's tear injury fell to the floor. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> She'll bleed again. At that moment, Dr Cliff Neppy came into the room. He had a real presence as he scanned and assessed. He allocated jobs, the best one being that he gave Dr Chaos the IV bag and Chamberlain and told him to hold the bag above his head <laughs> for three hours. <laughs> He then told me that he needed me to work with them to stabilise Gail, and he asked me to stay. I don't think I could have left at that point, even if he'd wanted me to. Gail was so close to death that day that doctors Johan and Cliff had to do a cut down to get a central line into her external jugular vein to administer fluids. So just think for a minute, if I had had to look for the coordinates of the airstrip that morning, it might have taken me five minutes, 10, 15. If it had taken me one minute more, Gail would not have survived. The doctors then called Mac in 
and Gail's father and her sister to say their goodbyes. And Dr Cliff explained that she may not survive the flight to Townsville. We had worked for three hours to stabilise Gail before we could move her out of the bedroom to the CQ Rescue helicopter for her then to be airlifted to our airstrip at Glenavon Station where the RFDS retrieval plane was waiting to transport her to Townsville General Hospital. As they were taking Gail out of the room, Dr Cliff turned back to me and he said, Robin, this is really going to hit you when we leave. You need to look after yourself now. As he walked out, he brushed his hand over a roll of green surgical cloth and he said, these are yours. And I thought, I know they're not mine, but I thanked him anyway and I told him I'd be fine. Of course I would be, I'm a nurse. Then I looked around the room at the chaos and I thought, holy smokes, did that really just happen? I couldn't walk out of the room. It was like there was an invisible shield stopping me from going anywhere. I had been with Gail for five hours. After a few minutes more, I broke through and I went outside, not because I wanted to, because I thought I should. When I walked outside, there were people everywhere, Gail's family, our neighbours and others. And I thought, were these people some of the voices I could hear over that critical two hours? How could they not have heard Gail's screams and come in to help? Did they have the phone when I so desperately needed it to call the flying doctor service? I was about to burst into tears when somebody handed me a cup of coffee and I can tell you it was the best cup of instant coffee that I've ever had in my life. I realised at that point that I hadn't had anything to eat or drink since dinner the night before because when I got the phone call from Adam that morning, I missed breakfast and I wasn't hungry, but I was thirsty. I sat down on a chair. I don't remember what was said or what I said, if anything. And then Adam appeared at my feet and sat on the ground and he said, can I have my watch back, please? I didn't speak. I took it off my wrist and I thanked him for it. And then he said, Robin, I'm really sorry I couldn't come back in, but I couldn't bear to see Gail like that. I put my head in my hands and I quietly sobbed. I could see he was traumatised. It was all over his face, but I couldn't deal with it. So I hopped up and walked back into the room to clean up. That's when I discovered the multiple pairs of artery forceps wrapped up in the green surgical cloth. Apparently, over the three hours that we'd worked together, I mentioned a few times that there were no artery forceps in the first aid kit, and there's still not. And Dr Cliff didn't ever want me to be without them again, so he left me his. I went home. I don't know how I got home. I don't remember driving, and I don't remember being driven, but I did get home. My children, Sam and Lydia, were due home from boarding school that afternoon and the pick-up place was 100 kilometres away. So my husband asked me if I'd go for the drive, but I, I just said I couldn't. I said I need to be on my own for a little while so that I'm feeling better by the time the kids get home. 
And when he left, I started to cry and shake uncontrollably and vomit. I didn't know at the time, but this was the beginning of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And that is exactly what it is, absolute disorder. While I was on my own at about five o'clock that afternoon, I had a very threatening and intimidating visit from two WorkSafe inspectors. Don't be concerned about me mentioning WorkSafe because they know that I'm talking about this today and I have their full support. They demanded that I go back to the accident site immediately with them. And I said that I was not going to go back there on my own. With that, they told me that under the Workplace Health and Safety Act, they would and could have me jailed, yes, jailed, for non-compliance. At Cantor Park the next day, the inspectors arrived with the same attitude. They videoed me from the time that I got out of my car. And then they videoed Adam and I as they told me to lie down on the ground with my head at the post hole digger where Gail had had her terrible accident the day before. They told Adam to reenact what he did with Gail that day. And we just had an awful argument about not doing it. Just after that, they took me inside and there was an hour and a half intense interrogation. And then they tried to bully me into signing a very, very inaccurate statement of events, which I also refused to do. So great was their impact on my mental health that my RFDS trauma counsellor seeked my consent to write to the minister to have them removed from their roles. Unbeknownst to me at the time, WorkSafe were very regretful and they acted swiftly. So there were lessons for everyone out of this accident. On the morning after Gail's accident, Dr Johann Schultz called me and I was such a crying, blubbering mess, I couldn't talk to him. I told my husband, you have to tell him I can't talk. And Johann's response was, please tell Robin that she does not have to talk. I just want her to listen. Hold the phone up against her ear if you have to so that I can talk to her. He said to me, Robin, what you did yesterday with Gail was absolutely remarkable. And he went on to sing my praises. He said, under the circumstances and with the limited equipment that you had, I don't believe I could have done any better. In fact, I don't think I would have done as well. And I thought, this is not me he's talking about. I'm not worthy of his words. He continued to call me every day for a week, during which time I was a vomiting, blubbering mess who couldn't think straight, couldn't function properly. I was waking up multiple times during the night with Gail screaming that I was hurting her. I was haunted by what else I could have done that could have made her condition better. My mind chatter kept saying to me, why did you do postgraduate gerontology and not emergency <laughs> nursing? <laughs> then Dr Cliff called me and he told me that they were very worried about my mental health and he insisted that I accept trauma counselling through the RFDS trauma counselling service that they used for themselves. The worst of it was I didn't understand what was happening to me because 
Nothing had physically happened to me and Gail was alive. And yet it was real, it hurt and it was terrifying. I honestly thought I was going mad and I'm quite sure there are a few people who thought the same thing at the time. My RFDS trauma counsellor had told me that the reason for the severity of my traumatic stress was as a result of several factors, basically. Number one, that Gaia was a friend, that she was somebody I knew well and I cared about, that I had to suppress my emotions for a long period of time to deal with a really catastrophic situation, that I was solely responsible for Gail's life and would have been a huge burden to carry had she died. And of course, the horrific effect from the WorkSafe inspectors. Mac called two nights after Gail's accident and he told me that Gail would have no use of her left arm. That can't be right, Mac. They must have made a mistake. He reassured me that they hadn't made a mistake. As Mac was talking, my mind went into a spin. I kept thinking, did I do that when I gave her intramuscular morphine? Maybe I shouldn't have told her to turn her head to the side when I gave her the water. What did I do that's caused this or made it worse? My thoughts were really irrational. I talked to Mac often while Gail was in hospital, but I couldn't bring myself to come and see her because any time that I thought about her, I'd just break down in tears uncontrollably, so it was weeks before I went and saw her. Nobody understood it and I couldn't expect them to. The end result of that dreadful day in 2002 was that Gail survived though with severe disabilities. And she has recently reassured to me that while she and Mac lead a different life, they have fulfilled most of their life's dreams and she's very glad to be alive. Gail has no use of her left arm and her husband Mac is her primary carer. I have enormous admiration and respect for the way Gail and Mac have overcome this extraordinary adversity and got on with their lives. They're a happy, successful couple. I could have not have got through this journey without the support and counsel of Drs. Cliff, Johan and Drs. Kelly, without the understanding and compassion of my wonderful mum and my beautiful children. Another lady who had a huge impact on my recovery was Fiona O'Sullivan from WorkSafe, though it was over a year because I wouldn't have anything to do with anyone from WorkSafe. She persisted and professionally persevered until we got to talk about the events surrounding the accident. She gave me the opportunity to vent and I was very angry. She didn't defend or criticise. She was genuinely empathetic and very patient. And she apologised on behalf of the department. We remain friends today. And she's even convinced me to become part of the WorkSafe Queensland Safety Advocate Program later this year. So that's a wonderful partnership to come out of this tragedy. This tip is something I was not good at. Give and accept social and emotional support to aid in mental health recovery because it works. I thought I was prepared, but I wasn't. I learned a lot about people that day and I had to be very careful with that information. 
People react differently to traumatic events and we have no right to judge because we don't know their story. For me, the trauma of dealing with Gail's physical injuries took five hours. Yet the social and emotional trauma of dealing with family, neighbours and the community is still a work in progress nearly two decades later. Anyone who has experienced trauma or post-traumatic stress knows that a kind word, a cup of coffee, a laugh, a hug are some really simple ways that we can help show that we care. You don't have to understand. Just be present and listen. Living on a busy rural cattle station for less than two years before Gail's accident, I hadn't had time to build strong friendships within the local community. And I was very, very protective of Gail after the accident and I refused to answer some incredibly intimate questions that I was being asked about her from neighbours and the community. As a result of this, over time, I found that both myself and my family were being isolated within that community. It was a very difficult time and I was very vulnerable. My coping mechanism was to depend on my family and two friends from years and years ago. They gave me the strength to straighten up and walk forward again. Our simple safety system and this emergency services card played a huge role in saving Gail's life because I didn't have to look for any of that information. It was laminated and glued next to every telephone, in the cottages, in the ablutions blocks, next to every UHF and in every vehicle on the property. As a direct result of this accident, last year I set up a charity called Rescue First. Its role really is to turn this into an app. I would now like to give a big shout out to our first corporate sponsors, the Rural Doctors Association of Queensland Foundation for not just believing in us, but also financially supporting this charity. It was born from the principle that the longer it takes emergency services to locate you, the less time they have to save your life. And this free, innovative app will actually do that. It basically turns one function of your phone into an EPIRB. Tip six, be prepared for the unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, we are all potentially first responders. Everyone in our household, in our workplace, in our community. We teach our children how to be safe from strangers, how to drive cars, to play sport, to cook. Why don't we teach them how to save their own life and the lives of others? My 2020 hindsight when it comes to clinical excellence and my experience with Gail can be best summed up by the best football coach of all time, Wayne Bennett. It's all about the basics. Now I'd just like to do a short audience activity if I can. If your answer to my first question is yes, I ask that you all stand. After that, if your answer is no, please sit down. And it's fine to say no because that's what today is all about. I need you to be really, really honest about this too, even if it's uncomfortable. So first of all, I want you to imagine that over here, there's a lady with a snake bite right now. In the middle here, there's a man choking 
right now. And on this side, there's a drowning child. Please stand if you are ready, willing and able to save a life. Fantastic. That's what I was counting on. <laughs> Do you have an accessible first aid kit? Do you have a first aid certificate or similar? Are you confident to treat that snake bite right now? Are you confident to save the gentleman's life from choking right now? And are you confident to resuscitate the drowning child right now? Brilliant. So to those who are standing, you rock. You are clearly ready to be a first responder right now. Thank you. You can sit down. For those of you who are not yet ready or who couldn't answer yes to all of those questions, please think really hard about my final question. Who are you prepared to sacrifice? As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.